The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Peter. First Peter, and we'll be looking at 1 through 5. First Peter, 1 through 5. First Peter, chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those of your charge, but being to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Please join me again in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you that you have not left us to our own wisdom to discern how you would have us live and how we are to best function, but you've given us your perfect word. You've given us everything we need to understand and to know you and to know how we might live for you and how to best follow you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would increase our understanding, especially as to your design for leaders in the church and our responsibility to them. And give us wisdom as a church, too, as, as we look to increase the leaders in our church. That we would be wise and discerning and obedient. So that the ch- this church would grow to be exactly what you've designed it to be and called us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in an important season in our life as a church as I just prayed, we're looking to add more leaders to our church and to increase ourselves by adding two more deacons, uh, two more elders, and, and possibly another pastor in the months ahead. And this is an exciting as well as an intimidating venture because elders have either the potential to be the greatest asset that a church has or its greatest threat. The church's health really hinges upon their faithfulness. Consider these sobering words of Paul that he gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 6. Sorry, Acts 20. I don't know why I said Acts 6. Acts 20. Beginning verse 28, he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so as you're praying about this decision to add leaders to our church, 
in the upcoming weeks, I thought it would just be appropriate for us to address this issue of what is it that God calls elders to be like? What is God's design for elders? Because if we're going to bring men on, we should know what we're looking for. What's the expectation? What what sort of what should, what standards should we hold elders to in the church? And so I thought this is one of the best passages we could look at. Because it gives us such a sobering, sobering clarity to what elders are called to. And this passage can be broken down into four main elements. Peter's experience as an elder, which is what gives him his qualification, so to speak, to speak to this issue. In verses 2 through 3, he gives the simple exhortation to shepherd the flock. Then in verse 4, he provides some encouragement as to their work. And then finally, he gives application to the church, an exhortation to the church in light of their response, the responsibility of elders. Let's look at that first point in verse one, Peter's experience as an elder. Why could you advance the slides just a, a bit? I don't have a clicker. Thanks, bud. Verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory of that's going to be revealed. And I want you to notice that first, that very first word in the verse. It's so in the ESV, uh, in the New American Standard has therefore. It's the Greek word un. It's a conjunction that connects Peter's previous sentence to this sentence. And just look at what previous sentence exhortation Peter just made in verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter's exhortation to elders is based upon that reality. You are going to be shepherding a church that suffers. And likewise, as a church, the church needs to consider, okay, if we're a church that's suffering, what kind of men do we want to shepherd us in the midst of suffering? What does the church need? Well, it needs... Men described here in First Peter 5. He begins this exhortation to elders by reminding them that he's one of them. He describes himself as a, a fellow elder, a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a fellow partaker of future glory. He's, a, he's suggesting that he's one of them. He's not giving this exhortation like some general in an ivory tower, but he's, he's giving these instructions as one that's down in the trenches, that's in the fight with them, that's suffering alongside of them. That's why he describes himself as a fellow elder, first of all. And it, I think it's remarkable because Peter, of course, was an apostle and was clearly identified as one of the key leaders of the apostles. But remarkably, Peter doesn't cite his apostleship, even though the apostles do in other places. He doesn't do that here. He just calls himself a fellow elder. He also doesn't assert that he's the first pope. For good reasons. But he presents himself as one who is presenting an example to be followed rather than a commander to be obeyed. He's coming alongside them rather than ordering them. In fact, the word that for exhort there is parakalao which um, same word that's used to describe the, the Holy Spirit in 
in John is the paraclete, the comforter. The word actually literally means to come alongside a person. To help them. Peter's coming alongside these men. He's not just telling them what to do. The word elder is presbyteros, where we get the word presbyterian. Simple translation of the word means an older man. And this is the word that the Bible uses to describe the official leaders, the, the official teachers of the church. The Bible actually uses three other terms to describe the same office. So use the, word, the term elder, also the word pastor, and the word overseer. In fact, all three terms are actually used, in the, at least in the noun or verbal form, in this text. Pastor or shepherd conveys the responsibility of feeding, of caring for, protecting, guiding the flock. The term overseer conveys the responsibility of leadership. You're responsible to make sure God's commands are getting fulfilled and the people are getting cared for. Overseer reflects responsibility. That they're the ones that have to give an account for what takes place within a church. And elder conveys the idea of spiritual maturity. Again, because the church is a spiritual entity, the title elder has less to do with age, although often elders are some of the oldest people in a, in a church. But they, the term here has less to do with age as much as it does with spiritual maturity. They are the, the older brothers in God's family, so to speak. So God is the father, right? God's our father. God is the pope. El Papa, not La Papa. Just make that clear. God's the pope. And then the elders are the older brothers. And then those who are younger, that's the term that Peter uses later on in chapter 5. Those who are younger are the, the, the people in general. So Peter conveys this exhortation as a fellow elder, but also one of the one with the same responsibility, a witness of sufferings. Now, commentators debate what Peter's referring to here, because he really could be referring to three different things. It could mean that Peter is saying he himself suffers just as Christ suffered. He's bearing the marks of Christ in his own body. This fits the context of the letter, especially because the last thing he said was, remember, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so that you would expect when he when he mentions, I'm a witness of the sufferings that he's saying, I know you're going to have to lead the flock of God in the midst of sufferings. And no, I'm a fellow sufferer along with you. Consider also how Paul describes the apostles ministry in Second Corinthians chapter four. Second, flip over there, Second Corinthians chapter four. He says this beginning in verse eight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies as they die, in other words. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's what the leaders of the church are called to, to lay down their lives, to suffer for the sake of making sure the flock is protected, just like our chief shepherd did for us. So that's Paul's description of pastoral ministry. So that could be what Peter's referring to. I'm a fellow sufferer with you. It could also just mean that Peter had personally witnessed Christ's sufferings. Now, Peter wasn't there at the cross, but as you know, Christ suffered throughout his life. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was ridiculed by people, hated by his own people. Thirdly, it could also mean that Peter's referencing his calling by Christ and really all leaders of the church to bear witness to Christ. For instance, in Acts 1.8, Jesus told all his disciples before he ascended into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he said this, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. God appointed the apostles to be witnesses to them and he sent them out to spread the gospel and to plant churches. And this is also why Peter claimed to be a witness in his sermon at the house of Cornelius. If you actually go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 10. This is remarkable. How Peter describes his responsibility. Beginning in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not all, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is the title or the term Peter will use throughout Acts to describe his work, his responsibility. And so it would make sense, since he's writing this letter to church leaders, to remind them they're also called to this responsibility. And so the question remains, which of these three is Peter referring to? Seeing the sufferings of Christ, being a fellow sufferer along with the elders, or bearing witness to the person and work of Christ through preaching? Well, commentators disagree for all good reasons. I actually would conclude that he's referring to all three. I think he has all three actually in mind. It could be possible he has one particularly in mind, but because all three can be validated through Scripture, I would actually think he's particularly using this word to convey all of these things. So pastors are called primarily to bear witness to the personal work of Christ through preaching, and they have the responsibility to bear whatever Christ brings their way as far as suffering as they seek to lead and protect the church. Elders are to take the lead in suffering with Christ even as they proclaim Him. Notice earlier in chapter 2, Peter said, 
chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And if shepherds are called to follow after the chief shepherd, they should expect that this is actually what they're called to. This is not a job. It's a responsibility. And that's why Peter wants to remind them that even though they are taking on a very weighty and difficult task, they will still be rewarded for it. He says, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. Peter mentions this to remind the elders why he is willing to suffer and why they should be willing to suffer. Why? Why is this task worth it? It actually builds off what he said previously to the church in chapter 2, verse 13. When he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why would we rejoice? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's actually then just taking that very principle and applying it to elders. His point is, present loss, brothers and sisters, is worth it for future gain. As Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Present loss is worth future glory. Peter's saying the losses are worth it, brothers. The pain of ministry, the the incalculable burden that no one else knows about. It's worth it because you will receive a glorious reward that is far beyond anything this world can compare to. There is nothing that this world could provide you that can compare with the reward that you're going to that you're going to receive if you're faithful to this task. And this then leads him to his exhortation. Chapter two, verse three. Sorry, verses two and three, excuse me. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Look at those verses again. And what is the primary exhortation that Peter gives? It's to shepherd. Right? That the title is elder. One who's spiritually mature. Their responsibility is to shepherd. It's the verb form of the noun pastor. The noun pastor is used only one time in the Bible, and that's Ephesians 4.11. A pastor is one who shepherds. In fact, again, the the three words used to describe the responsibility of elders are are all used right here in this passage. And this tells us that an elder is a pastor, is an overseer. It's referring all to the same office. It's just emphasizing different aspects of the responsibility. And this word, shepherd or pastor, denotes all the responsibilities that are conveyed in shepherding. Guarding, guiding, cleaning, feeding. In fact, it's actually the same word that's used by Jesus in that conversation he had with Peter in John 21. When Jesus uh, confronts Peter and asks him, Peter, do you love me? He does that three times. 
You might recall Peter's response the second time was, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus' response to that was, tend my sheep. Peter, if you love me, tend my sheep. It's that word here, shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. Of all the words that God could use to describe the responsibility of elders, this is the one that he chooses. He doesn't describe them as managers. He doesn't call them entrepreneurs. He doesn't call them generals or commanders, motivational speakers. He calls them shepherds. That's significant. That's what an elder should look like. That's what an elder should do. That's what an elder should be drawn to in ministry is that kind of work. And just consider the imagery of Psalm 23 of of how a shepherd is supposed to care for sheep. The Lord is my shepherd because he's my shepherd. What I shall not want. He's going to take care of me. He's going to give me what I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He brings me to the good stuff. He shows me what's best. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I will fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, those Psalm 23 is probably the best loved passage in all of Scripture. Why? It's because of the imagery. That's what we want as people. That's exactly what we should, we should expect from shepherds, to act like this. That's what we want from our leaders. Wives, that's what, that's what your husbands, what you want from your husbands. Ch- children, that's what children want from their parents. That's what students want from their teachers. They want somebody to know that's got their back, that cares for them, about them, not just about their productivity. Contrast this with God's rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel that we read about earlier in Ezekiel 34. He said, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you not feed them. You're supposed to be charged with taking care of them, but instead of taking care of them, you use them for yourself, for your own exaltation, for your own pleasures. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. I mean, think about the implications. He's saying, you're horrible. But what's the implications? What are they supposed to be doing? All of the other things. The opposite. And because they didn't shepherd as they were supposed to, what happened to the sheep? Verse 5, they were scattered because there was no shepherd. There was a shepherd, but there was no shepherd. They were wolves. And the sheep became food for all the wild beasts. And then Christ says, my sheep were scattered. My sheep were scattered. And they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. Now, again, contrast the the shepherds of Israel with what Jesus describes of himself in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. 
I'm the one that looked, Ezekiel 34, looked forward to. I'm he. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. One of the chief responsibilities of shepherds is to look out for the sheep. Not the, the Peter then exhorts the elders to exercise oversight. The word oversight, there is episcopontes, where we get the word episcopalian. And it, 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 the noun episcopos means bishop. So a bishop is an overseer, one who takes responsibility for what he's overseeing. They keep an eye on things. They make sure people are safe. They make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. And then Peter gives three descriptions of how shepherding and spiritual, ins- spiritual oversight should be characterized. He says it needs to be done willingly, needs to be done gratuitously, and by example. He says, exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. That is, they should not take this role on simply out of a sense of obligation. They should do it because they want to do it. They're, because it's, it's a heavy responsibility. It's a dangerous responsibility. It's a, desi- it's a responsibility that you can expect loss and pain in. And so it's, a wise person might be reluctant. And what Peter says, if you're reluctant to do it, if that's not something you want to take on, don't feel obligated. Don't do it. It shouldn't be burdensome to you. Being an elder shouldn't be burdensome. It should be something you want to do, despite the burden. I, I, by way of analogy, it should be pursued similar to how couples pursue wanting children. Right? They want to have children, despite the fact that having children is going to mean a lot of late nights. It's going to be. It's going to cost them money. It's going to cost them energy. It's going to bring out sin. Because it's stressful. So it's going to make life more difficult and painful. And yet, it's a, it's a responsibility they're eager for. They want to be parents. It's that same sort of attitude that should convey a person when they pursue eldership. Not out of a sense of a chore to be performed, but because you, you have to do it. Because you love the sheep. You love to care for them. Secondly, it should be done gratuitously. Because he says... Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The simple point is they're not to be drawn into the work as a means of making money. They shouldn't look at pastoral ministry as a job. It's not employment. I love how the King James Version translation has it. It says, not for filthy lucre. Not for dishonorable gain. Like the idea is if you're doing, pursuing, caring for the sheep for gain, that's dishonorable. That's shameful. And instead of being motivated to make money, they should embrace the work eagerly. And the idea is that you don't need to be motivated by compensation because you would do the work for free if you need to. One of my favorite professors in, in seminary used to say, you shouldn't expect churches to pay you. You should pay churches to let you preach. Some of you used to have him as a pastor. Beloved Professor Montoya. And he's right. 
You know, even though in other passages, apostles clarify that, that men should be paid to do ministry so that they can be freed up to do the work full time without any sort of distraction. Nonetheless, that should not be the motivation for why they take on the ministry. That's Peter's point. If necessary, the work can be performed without needing paid. That'd be great. And, it, and but if you but if again, the needs sometimes demand that a person needs to to be freed up and the church has freed me up to do that. And I think we have the need to bring on another person who needs to be freed up to be able to serve the needs of the body. But just so you guys know that I'm not just talking out of two sides of my mouth here. Some of you might, might not know that when I first graduated seminary for the first seven years of ministry, I wasn't paid at all. Um. I just served the church that I was at because they had the need. It, in fact, I wasn't full, freed up to serve this church full-time until, I think, four years ago. Previous to that, I worked part-time because I could. Um, but as the church has grown and the needs have increased, uh, the leaders thought it would be good, best to free me up full-time. But if it happens that our income drops or because of other pressing needs that I should step down, uh, from being freed up full time, then I would do that. Because again, it's not a job; it's 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 a responsibility. As Paul told the Corinthians, "I would most gladly spend and be spent for your souls," and he says that in the context of um, being criticized for not receiving money, because he was a, a tent maker. Unlike the false apostles who were boasting in the fact, well, we get paid because we're the real professionals. Paul said, I don't care about the money. I just care about your souls. And if you look down on me because I'm not taking your money, you're missing the point. Consider that these were his final words to the Ephesian elders. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the elders. Don't look at the sheep as something to gain something from, but think of them as what are their needs and what do, how do I need to order my life in order to make sure their needs are getting met. And I want you guys to understand this standard because that's Christ's standard. As a culture, yes, ministry has become big business, but that's shameful. Again, it's not wrong. It's biblical to pay pastors, but it's to free them up. It's not so that they become wealthy or well-known and popular and to have a grand following. Ministry is not about pastors we're elders. It's about sheep. Thirdly, Peter says good shepherds will lead by example rather than control. He says not domineering over their, those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Remarkably, this is actually the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 20. Go ahead and look at there. Matthew 20.
Verse 25. But Jesus called them, speaking to his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's the same word Peter uses. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you notice Peter, Jesus repeats among you, among you three times, just as Peter does. Don't lord it over, just like Jesus told us not to. And care for those among you. It's about those among you. It's not about control or authority or being the greatest. It's about those among you. Right? Domineering or lording it over people tends to happen when people begin to be viewed as a means to building a successful ministry rather than the end of ministry. People are tools to make a ministry look successful rather than the ministry being a tool to help people be spiritually successful. Right? The point is not the church. It's not the ministry. It's the people. This seems to be forgotten in America. Instead of being domineering and controlling in their leadership, elders need to lead by example. They're not just supposed to issue orders and tell people what to do, but they're supposed to show people what to do. Help people see what it means to live for Christ. Under shepherds should be living patterns. That's that's the imagery here. Models of the chief shepherd. This is why Paul unabashedly tells the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He told the Philippians, Philippians 3.17, brothers join in imitating me And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul has no problem saying, follow me. Let me be an example because he knows that's his job. In fact, flip over to 2 Thessalonians. Notice what he says to Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says this beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And he says this in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Again, it was not because we don't have this right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Again, I I repeat this because we need to understand Christ's imagery for pastors and elders and overseers. It's about caring for people. It's not about caring for a ministry. And elders are to lead not so much by telling people what to do, but by showing them what to do. 
text leads us to verse 4, where Peter then encourages the elders. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Peter concludes his exhortation with the encouragement that if they serve the church according to these standards, they will eventually be rewarded for their faithfulness. Unlike all the other human endeavors that we face in life, elders will be rewarded for their effort and faithfulness. And I say that because it's been my experience that usually the people who deserve the most recognition are often the ones that don't. And the people that do receive the recognition are the ones that are flatterers. They go out of their way to draw attention to themselves, to make themselves look good, to tell their authorities the right things. And they're really only doing it because they want people to think highly of them. And so they get the recognition, but the people who are doing their job just because it's their job, because they care about the company or because they care about their schoolwork, they're just trying to be faithful, are often the ones that totally get overlooked. Because they're not trying to draw, they're not doing it to draw an exa- uh, attention. They're just trying to be faithful. They might be the smartest person in a company, the wisest leader in an organization, or the, the most sacrificial member of the family. And yet all their, all their efforts are taken for granted. And Peter's, Peter wants the elders to know that's not going to happen to you. Because Christ will reward each person according to their labor. But again, note when that reward's going to come. When the chief shepherd appears. In other words, elders don't expect the reward before that time. Don't expect compensation. Don't expect affirmation. Don't expect encouragement. Don't expect admiration. Don't expect a thank you. Don't expect it. It's great if you get it, and it's a good sign if you're getting that with people because it shows that they're growing in their love and their care. But your reward will come not after weeks of hard work, not after 10 or 20 or 30 years of sacrificing your interests for the sake of others, your reward will come when Christ returns. And the reward that He will present to faithful elders, again, won't be just some cheap words given at the award ceremony at the end of the year. It's not going to be some cheap trinket that will get stuffed away in an attic and collect dust. It will be an unfading crown of glory. Something that people will see throughout all eternity. And it will give true testimony to your sacrificial labor and love. Peter then turns his attention to the rest of the congregation. Verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He addresses the church members, as I mentioned before, as those who are younger. And again, that's because he's been speaking about the elders, the older brothers, so to speak. Now he's speaking to the younger brothers and sisters within the church, those who are not in that office of leadership. And he basically gives two commands. Be submissive. And be humble. We have a good understanding now, I think, of what elders are called to. This is what the rest of the church is called to. 
the end of the day, you want to know if you're being a faithful church member, especially in regard to your relationship with the elders. Are you being submissive? And are you being humble? First command, be subject, is particularly off-putting to 21st century Americans, exponentially more so if you live in Oregon. We don't like that word submissive. I mean, why would anyone willingly be subject to anyone else? Why would a person choose to subject themselves to another person's authority? Well, consider the alternatives. You can entrust yourself to your own care. And you can end up like the sheep in Ezekiel 34. Which is what will happen. Or you can entrust your soul to those whose role is to be defined by selfless sacrificial care. And they are the ones whom God has appointed to care for you. So let me be clear. If you don't want to be shepherded by the elders of a church, you don't actually want to be shepherded by Christ. That's the implication. If you don't want to be shepherded, if you don't want to submit yourself to the spiritual authority of elders, you don't actually want to submit yourself to the spiritual authority of Christ. And at that point, you really need to ask yourself the question, am I a believer? Because that is what a Christian wants to do. It may not be normal in America to submit, but it's very Christian. In fact, that's how Christianity is defined in multiple places. Those who submit to Christ. He is their Lord. This is who God has appointed to do His shepherding. Now, obviously, if the men who are elders are not qualified, either because of character, because they're not doing what Peter exhorts them to do or what Paul exhorts them to do in other passages, or because they're failing to interpret the Word of God faithfully, well, then you should probably find a different church and find elders who will do that because God does have elders that do that. But we need to find them. And they need to be faithful to that charge. Secondly, Peter says you need to be humble. But notice he gives it to all the church members. I would include the elders because he says all of you. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. I mean, that's image imagery for us to think about. Clothe yourselves with humility. His point is humility should be the primary characteristic in the life of a Christian. Now, you know a gang member by how they're dressed. Or you know an Orthodox Jew by how they're dressed. Or you, if you go to a football game or a baseball game, you know what team a fan is rooting for because of how they're dressed. What Peter is saying here is, you should know a Christian because they're the most humble people around. Is that how people would describe you? Is that how you're clothed? The people would say, that is a humble man. That is a humble woman. He says, all of you, that's what you should be clothed with. The, the word for humility is typarosune. The word means to be lowly, 
versus elevated. So just as in a, in a battle, soldiers fight to gain the high ground because that's where they're going to be most safest and most successful in their work. In the church, it's the opposite. Christians fight for the low ground because that's where they're going to be safest and that's where they're going to be most spiritually successful. Fight for the low ground. Mark ten forty three. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The greatest Christian is the humblest Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the greatest person in this church is not the pastor or the elders or the church leaders, community group leaders. The greatest person in the church is the humblest. And a truly humble person is simply concerned about how they can care for others. They're not concerned about what other people think of them. That's what humility looks like. They're just thinking about the needs of other people. They come to church and they're thinking, how is so-and-so doing? How can I encourage so-and-so? What needs might I meet? In, in their conversations, they're, they're willing to be honest if a question's asked of them, but their burden is they want to care for the people around them. That's true humility. And this is what should characterize our entire church. And therefore, this is what should primarily characterize those who are aspiring to be pastors and elders. Let's pray. Father, we know that we're at a critical venture, a critical time in our journey as a church as we seek to bring on more leaders, deacons, elders, and another pastor possibly. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom that we would approach this responsibility as a church with sobriety, that you would give those men clear thinking, and you would stir up their hearts for this work if that's what you called them to do. And if not, that you'd make that clear as well. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church for all of us to, to clothe ourselves with humility. That we wouldn't be seeking our own ends, our own interests, but continue to seek your glory as we seek to love one another. And Lord, we, we, we pray these things because we know it's not natural Lord, it's not hard to manipulate people through money or rewards or affirmation to do things. But we don't want to be manipulated. We want from the heart to be transformed to do this work of ministry that you've called us to as a church. And so do a miraculous work in our heart. Refine us. Humble us. Strengthen us. Deepen our convictions so we would be faithful to one another and to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.